I think a quiet knee's your kind of a, an obvious one. So quiet knee being you've got good range of motion, so full range of motion, whether that be symmetrical or you're really close, you're kind of like that 95% of the opposite of the contralateral side. No effusion or very minimal effusion and minimal to no pain. Knowing when to return to running and return to sport post-ACL surgery can be a challenge. So to help us with this, we had Amy Arundale, who used to work for the Brooklyn Nets, and now she currently works for Red Bull. So she's got a lot of experience in this space. What stood out to me is the cluster of tests Amy uses, from subjective to objective to strength to certain exercises. And she brought up a novel concept called The Quiet Knee I hope you enjoyed this episode. My name is Michael Risk, and this is Physio Explained. Welcome, Amy. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. We're going to talk about ACLs and specifically return to play, return to running. How do you know when someone is ready to return to play or return to run? Let's start with running. I just have a gut feeling. <laughs> I was thinking that before this. I'm like, it's just, you just know. <laughs> you just know. Yeah. No, that is absolutely not it. <laughs> That's good. There's a lot of things that go into making the decision, just as there's a lot of things that go into making the decision to progress an athlete through rehab or to return them back to training or even back to match play. Return to running has, I think, as many decision points. And especially since it comes as one of those really early decision points. So your first one can be just based on timing. You know, how far out from surgery is your athlete? I think we're looking at somewhere in that three to four month or 12 to 16 week period, but we don't have a hard and fast you reach this point and you're ready to go. And that's really important because time at any point during an ACL rehab can't be our, our only measure. Yeah. But what those measures are is still, I think, you know, a great question. And we don't really have a lot of information in the literature. We've got some nice systematic reviews, but the rest we're kind of leaving right now is a lot to kind of clinical expertise. And so there's a lot of experts that have put thoughts out there, but we don't necessarily have really good literature guidance. I think it's coming. <laughs> good. Talk to me about what you might look for subjectively and objectively when you're thinking someone is close, when your gut's telling you. When my gut says yes, then my gut is generally relying on I think a quiet knee's your kind of a, an obvious one. So quiet knee being you've got good range of motion, so full range of motion, whether that be symmetrical or you're really close, you're kind of like that 95% of the opposite of the contralateral side. No effusion or very minimal effusion and minimal to no pain. So we'll say like less than a two on a VAS scale. So I think those are your like very basics. That, that knee is pretty quiet. It's dealing pretty well with what you've been throwing at it. In addition to that, I think we've got to say at a baseline, we've got to put some strength in there. And so what's in the literature right now is over 70 or 80% limb symmetry index. For our quads, especially, some people are saying hamstrings as well. 
I think we can make the argument for whole leg. So actually, I've been really lucky to be part of a consensus statement that Rosemary Waterman's doing outside of, she's at the University of Salford. And from our, this consensus group, we've actually said, okay, so what's in the literature, that 70% limb symmetry, you know, maybe 70 to 80% on hop tests, is that actually enough to meet the demands of running? Because we look at the actual forces that you have to produce as well as absorb and generate kind of during running, those are actually pretty big forces. So yeah, we can say 70%, but do we actually need to be more higher up? Do we need to be more like 85%? Or are we actually better off saying, can we take this as relative to body weight? So our group has said, okay, what about 1.45 Newtons per kilogram body weight? Is that actually a better raw value to say, this is the amount of force that you're going to have to generate when you're running? Are you actually able to do that? And then it's not just that max force. You're going to be able to do it over and over and over again. So do we actually need the endurance component to some of this testing? So can we test that max force, but can they actually also generate force? You know, we're starting at a minute because oftentimes some of our standard running progressions are like a minute running, minute walking. Okay, but do you have the endurance to say be able to do sit to stands from a 90 degree knee bend, say, for a minute and be able to maintain that through that whole minute? So I think now we're starting to see the what was traditional, what was an easy maybe surgeon criteria start to be expanded out into let's actually take some of these like biomechanical demands of running and put them into our criteria. So we're really matching those demands with our criteria. I like the mix of the subjective and objective. I like the quiet knee principle that could run all the way through when you start running as well. I want to come back to the specificities of the exercises you would use, but something that just came up was what happens in a stubborn knee? Because sometimes sometimes post-ACL surgery, they don't get that range back really quickly. Is there ever a time where you would get them running when, say, maybe they haven't met one or two of those criteria? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a case-by-case basis. You know, we'd hope that by three, four months, you've got most of your extension back. You've got most of your flexion back. Now, do you need that real end range flexion? You know, okay, so maybe if you're missing some of that like real end range flexion, you know, and you're kind of out there in that three, four months range, maybe you're at that four, four month range. Okay, I think that's where you start to have these conversations with the athlete, with your surgeon, with, you know, the rest of, if you're working within a multidisciplinary team, you start to have those conversations of, okay, we're missing this piece. Are we all comfortable with starting to add this load? You know, maybe that's the one thing that they're, they're, they've got strength. They've got strength endurance. Their core is good. Their hips are good. Checking off lots of different buckets, but maybe they're just not getting that last, you know, five, 10 degrees of terminally flexion. You know, I think that's where you start to have those discussions. If you're missing extension, I think that's maybe a different conversation because we know from the outcomes literature, you've got to have good quads. And if you don't have full extension or at least very like within one to two degrees 
you may be dealing with some other issues in there. Are, are you really having full quad quad activation or do you have some inhibition? Is there something going in the, on in that joint that's not letting you get to that, that terminal extension? That's a good principle of the cluster of things that you can check off because if someone is missing one thing, you can still progress a little. Yeah, and I think it comes back to our team is, is your athlete comfortable with it? Are your surgeon, you know, comfortable with it? Are you comfortable with it? And I think if there's a red flag along the way there too, if your athlete says, you know what, I just, I'm not feeling ready. Or the opposite may be that like, look, I feel super ready. I just accidentally ran across the road and didn't, didn't know it. Sorry, by the way. <laughs> like, yeah, you know, it happens. <laughs> it, it definitely happens, <laughs> especially once you're getting into that three, four month mark. You know, they may, they may be feeling really good. And feeling really ready to go. So having that conversation with the whole team that's working with that athlete and that athlete in particular, I think is really valuable. And for clinicians, you know, a traditional private practice, what tests would you be looking at for that 80 to 90%? You mentioned the hop test. Do you have any other strength tests? Like you said, the sit to stand from 90 degrees. What does that start to look like for you, but also clinicians that might not have access to a whole lot of equipment? I mean, I think, you know, our gold standard is a dynamometer, our electromechanical dynamometer. And if you don't have access to them, I think it's a great way to maybe start to add connections, whether that be a connection to the local university, or if you're in a really rural practice, there may not be that ability to. So if you can have access to an electromechanical dynamometer, I think that's your ideal. That's our gold standard. If there are some cases where you can't. And so whether it's really stabilizing a handheld, whether that's using like a one rep max, then I think, you know, there are some alternatives. Andrew Lynch has a really good paper where he kind of compared some of those different strength testing modalities with regards to, you know, how, how well can we compare them to, say, an electromechanical dynamometer. There's also, like we mentioned, hop tests. And I think we should also mention it's important to build up to hopping. You know, we can't just do strength, do strength, do strength, and then test these return to running kind of criteria. We need to be building up some of these kind of, we'll call them quote unquote pre running exercises, whether those be kind of heel raises, some small bounces, small hops. So, one to two inches off the ground, not big hops, but building kind of those progressions up. But then things like single leg squats, planks, you know, uh, Blaze Williams uses a minute plank as one of his criteria. He also uses a minute of step ups to a metronome. So he uses 160 beats per minute and they've got to be kind of stepping up that starts to put it at a cadence so that you're, you know, it's closer to kind of like that running cadence. Plus you've got that minute endurance piece. And then you can look at form of things. Can they hold a good form on a single leg squat, on a double leg squat, on a drop jump? And we can use objective criteria here in certain places. We can also use subjective. There's a piece here for how well do they move? And quantifying movement is a tough piece. So do you want a 2D video of that? Do you have access to 3D? Do you want to do a drop jump? 
But then simple things also related to jumping could be using something like an RSI or a reactive strength index. So something like the MyJump2 app is in the US, it costs $10. You can have it on your on your phone and really have a, a pretty good objective measure of flight time, of kind of ground contact time, be able to calculate an RSI and then be able to compare limbs that way. So there's lots of different ways that we can go all the way from kind of a subjective assessment of some of these movements all the way to say a really more objective measure, say of jumping and really kind of breaking down the components of running into some factors that we can look at and say, all right, do we feel comfortable with our athlete and where they're at and feel that they're ready to really handle the demands of running? I love that. And it, it's really cool now that we've got apps to measure these things because there's, I know a lot of physio clinics don't have a lot of equipment. Some don't even have big gym gear. So to be able to have access to something like that, that's really cool. The power that we have between, you know, iPhone level, which you can substitute as a goniometer all the way to something like uh, the MyJump2 or the same group has a running app that will help you. You can film an athlete running and look at, you know, their gait pattern, look at asymmetries in their gait. So maybe once they are running or maybe you've got them, you know, say running an Alter-G, you can actually already have some objective data without needing really expensive 3D motion analysis lab or instrumented treadmill. Yeah, <laughs> we use one called Runmatic. Really cool, just filming on your iPhone and you can see asymmetries, cadence, vertical oscillation, things like that. Really helpful. Yeah, there's a few of them and, and yeah, they're really powerful tools that are in the palm of your hand, literally. And I, I wanted to touch on two more things. You mentioned subjective movement quality what do you often see? I often see like that stiff knee and they can be strong, but maybe not have developed that movement pattern back yet. What do you see and what are you doing when you see that? I don't know if I want to say I've seen it all because I think there's always variations that'll come up, but you know, you get a whole range from that stiff, maybe afraid to really use the knee flexion. And so you might get a single leg squat and they really only go about 10 degrees in the knee flexion, maybe they get the rest of it out of their trunk and their hips. You know, that that can to me can say, okay, well, what's causing that? Like, do we need to really be looking at their quad strength, especially maybe that eccentric quad strength? What are the pieces that are causing them to be afraid to use that knee flexion or unable to use that knee flexion? All the way to kind of our traditional quote unquote knee valgus. So that hip adduction, internal rotation, knee abduction pattern. And then I think there's everything, there's everything in between. And I've seen some really creative other things too. <laughs> and, you know, I think it takes drilling down into, okay, where are those deficits and what might be causing this pattern? And also, you know, how, how old are they? Are they going through puberty? Or are they, are they really tall and their levers are just really long? And so they need more strength to be able to control their knee and their hip because their knee's a lot farther away from their hip than it is for someone like me. Have they just grown two inches in the last year? And so, you know, their muscles were attuned to kind of that previous lever length and now suddenly it got longer. 
you know, I think there's there's a lot of factors that go in there, especially with ACL, since we do see a tend to see a little bit younger population sometimes in factoring in are these athletes in the middle of a big developmental phase, in which case as a physio, that's really exciting because you can make such a big impact as they're growing. But it also means we've got to factor that into what we're doing and really do we need to put more motor learning pieces into our rehab? Do we need to slow them down? Do we need to take some of those factors into consideration as we're building out this rehab and as we're looking at how they're moving? What I've really loved about this, I think there's a lot of value in, it's not just criteria, time, and it's not protocol. We can actually look at multiple things, the subjective, the movement quality, your gut, some objective testing, so that is really valuable info. Thank you so much for joining us, Amy. Thanks for having me. It's been fun.